This is episode number 761 with Lisa Cohen, Google's Director of Data Science and Engineering for Gemini, Assistant, and Search Platforms. Today's episode is brought to you by ReadyTensor, where innovation meets reproducibility. And by Intel and HPE Esmeral Software. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today we have the incredible fortune of having Lisa Cohen on the show and at just the right time. Earlier this month, Google announced the public release of Gemini Ultra, their largest language model and the only LLM that is comparable to GPT-4. I've personally been experimenting with Ultra and have found myself using it on some tasks that I previously relied solely on GPT-4. Ultra maintains attention across large context windows, competently generating natural language and code. Like GPT-4V, Ultra is multimodal and so accepts both an image and text as input at the same time. Piggybacking on Google's excellence at search, I've found Gemini Ultra to be particularly effective at tasks that involve real-time search. The Google Bard project that focused on real-time information retrieval was renamed Gemini when Gemini Ultra was released. Lisa Cohen, our guest today, is perhaps the best person on the planet to be speaking to about this momentous release. As Director of Data Science and Engineering for Google's Gemini, Assistant and Search Platforms, Lisa is responsible for Gemini's rollout to Google's billions of users worldwide. In addition, she was previously Senior Director of Data Science at Twitter and Principal Director of Data Science at Microsoft. She holds a Master's in Applied Math from Harvard University. In this episode, Lisa details the three large language models in Google's Gemini family and how the largest one, Gemini Ultra, fits in. She talks about the many ways you can access Gemini models today, how absolutely enormous LLM projects are carried out and how they're rolled out safely and confidently to literally billions of people. And she talks about how LLMs like Gemini Ultra are transforming life and work for everyone from data scientists to educators to children and how this transformation will continue in the coming years. All right, you ready for this exciting episode? Let's go. Lisa, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Where are you calling in from? Seattle. Nice. Um, so I came across you because you were a recent guest on Sadie St. Lawrence's Data Bytes Podcast, which if people regularly listen to the show, they've probably encountered Sadie many times. She was most recently in our 2024 data science trends episode that kicked off 2024 that kicked off 2024 so that was episode number 745 uh but yeah she's done that for three years in a row now uh, as well as having her own episode on her own topics amazing speaker great host your episode with her on data bytes was fantastic as soon as i saw the kind of like teaser clip i instantly I can't remember how I reached out to you, but somewhere maybe ask Sadie. I can't remember, but I remember seeing that clip and instantly reaching out to you because you are a brilliant speaker working on some of the most exciting stuff on the planet right now. So I am delighted to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, yeah, so it was fun to chat with Sadie and really happy to be on Super Data Science. 
Yes, yes. Well, let's get right into these exciting topics. So you are currently the director of data science and engineering for, I mean, the title that you have on LinkedIn, maybe this has changed now with this release, but it's director of data science and engineering for Google Bard, assistant and search platforms. Uh, now, recently, uh, as, as of last week at the time of recording, you switched the branding of Google Bard to Gemini. So I don't know if that impacts your job title or if you want to talk about that. Yes, that's right. We're fresh in the, the midst of it, but it is now, um, I now work on Assistant Gemini and search platforms. Um, we have renamed Bard to Gemini to reflect our most powerful family of models that you can access now through gemini.google.com. Uh, we also released an app, so you can go through um, Android, Play Store, or on iOS to access as well. Yep, yep. And I have been playing with Gemini Ultra on all of those different platforms. So let's kind of break down, even just in your title, you have these different products that are interrelated, I guess increasingly interrelated. So Gemini, Assistant, Search Platforms, what do those different things mean? And what is your key responsibilities? What are your key responsibilities as Director of Data Science and Engineering overseeing that vast portfolio of products? Great. So my role and my team is leading data science for these products that you mentioned. And so what that means for something like Google Assistant, for example, we have hundreds of millions of monthly active users using Google Assistant. I'm one of them. Um, and we want to make sure that everyone has a really great quality experience. So when you say the Hey G keyword, which I won't fully say because all my devices will wake up um, <laughs> and it responds when you want it to and it doesn't respond when you don't want it to. Um, we want to make sure that when you try to execute a task that it completes successfully and it does what you intended to, playing the right song, calling the right person, etc. So we have in the data science space, you know, a number of metrics that we use to track kind of the quality of your experience. We analyze the user journeys, um, of course, all anonymized and with personal information appropriately stored. Um, but we're looking for just overall aggregate user trends um, to remove friction points and just continue building on kind of where we have strong product market fit. Um, for BARD, now Gemini, um, we're doing data science across the breadth of the product. So again, we're looking at user experiences, understanding the use cases, understanding you know, how much users are using Gemini for coding or for writing or summarization. How does their journey evolve as they you know, start using the product and kind of understand what they can and can't do? And how does it progress as they become a more um, engaged, experienced user? How does kind of like their conversations evolve, et cetera, so that we can really evolve the product to, um, again, be most useful. It's such an evolving space with, you know, just changing human interaction patterns with Gen AI. And so we want to continue moving with that trend and helping um, users understand how they can best leverage this tool to realize their potential. Um, so again, there's measurement and evaluation to see how helpful was the response. Was it correct? Did we prevent hallucinations? Ensuring the safety of responses, um, ensuring great experiences on the app, for example. And then things like experimentation infrastructure, logging to ensure that we have the right um, data and measurement to innovate and measure and learn along the way. 
And then for search platforms, that's really like the platform part of search. So covering areas such as latency, reliability, capacity, um, pretty much every product I've ever worked on, latency has been so powerful. So when I worked on Visual Studio, I remember users would say, you know, if you just make the next version faster, I'll buy it. Um, and so we did a lot of work to, you know, make things load in the background. There's kind of cold start, hot, um, warm start to, to load everything. Similar with Twitter, we had time to first tweet. Um, so with search, Latency is really impactful, the user experience as well. And so there's a lot of analysis that we do, whether it's profiling like analysis to understand where time is being spent or looking at different experiences to see where users have more sensitivity to latency. So for a weather query, you expect that to be really fast. For a more complex query, you might um, you know, tolerate a little bit longer time, and that helps us kind of prioritize the, the roadmap. Reliability, again, for that. Every product I've worked on as well has had, you know, seen an impact with reliability, such as Azure. So, you know, when you have an outage, then that really impacts users' usage for some time afterwards. We see the same for search. And so we help measure and identify any reliability issues, which might just also be kind of at the feature level as well, and kind of work with those teams to ensure that a great experience, a reliable experience, um, and then also working on areas like capacity, our internal developer experience and velocity, and guiding different actions around like our, our code maintenance for the search stack. That's unreal. I It's like hard for me to wrap my head around how one person can be involved in so many enormously popular products. Like Google search platform is just like one of the three and yeah, you said over a hundred million or was it hundreds of millions of users of Google Assistant? And now Gemini is also going to be taking off. Uh, I mean, it already has hugely. It's, it's amazing. And I guess it shows by having one person be responsible for these kinds of things like latency and reliability across Assistant Gemini search platforms, it shows to me at a distance, and maybe this isn't something you can't, maybe this is something you can't really talk in, talk about or dig into, but it's interesting to me how that it, it suggests to me the importance of the interconnectivity of those experiences for users that across search, across generative things that are happening with Gemini models, across the assistant experiences, across all of your Google Assistant devices that you might have, you're getting a high quality low latency, reliable experience um, unified across all of them. Yeah. And so, I mean, definitely it's with a, it's with a broad team um, and definitely grateful to, I think, be able to work on these experiences that impact so many users. I think that was important to me, even in my first job to like be able to work on something where users would immediately see the impact of the work that we're doing. But like you mentioned, um, there's a lot of connections across, whether it might be just kind of gaining instincts around user expectations and tendencies and approaches that we can then leverage those learnings and apply to other areas. Um, we also look at areas, you know, where we should be consistent intentionally or intentionally different um, based on the nature of the different experiences. And then from a data science perspective, I think um, the kind of centralization across does give us opportunity for efficiencies of reusing libraries, techniques, approaches, and kind of that peer group to both um, share ideas with brainstorm approaches um, and socialize across. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. It is a tremendous role. And so digging into the particular part that we were talking about earlier, and that I think we're going to focus a lot in this episode, that name change in your title from Bard to Gemini, that reflects 
the Bard product being renamed to Gemini. Why did that happen? What does this new naming mean? Yeah, so we updated the name to Gemini to reflect the most powerful models, which is Gem- the family of models, which is Gemini, um, which we released in December. Um, and I think, you know, by kind of using this cohesive name across just increases clarity for for users about which model they're they're using. Um, and we're going to be start use, to, starting to use that more broadly at Google as well. So we already have more than a million people using features like Help Me Write through Duet AI. And going forward in the coming weeks, Duet AI will become Gemini for Workspace. Cloud customers will also see Duet AI becoming Gemini in the coming weeks. Um, so that way we have a cohesive story. It makes a lot of sense. I think particularly with the, for me, it's obvious that Gemini, particularly the Gemini Ultra model, is incredibly prestigious. It is pushing the capabilities of what any AI system could do on the planet. And so to be associating branding with that, to me, makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it simplifies things for users as well. You're not think, you don't have to be thinking about all these different products when ultimately you're using the same model family in the back end. It, yeah, it just makes sense to simplify that branding. So very cool. In addition to the public release of Gemini Ultra last week at the time of recording, a, a couple of weeks ago at the time of publication, what else did Google announce last week alongside that? So we introduced the Gemini Advanced subscription. So that's now available um, as part of the Google One AI Premium plan. It's $19.99 a month. Starts with a two-month free trial. So definitely go check it out um, and give it a give it a um, a turn. Give us any feedback. So Gemini Advanced is how you chat with Gemini Ultra 1.0. So that's the largest and most capable state-of-the-art AI model from Google. Um, we also launched a new Gemini app. Um, so really excited about the opportunity that that's going to provide for making Gemini more accessible and um, seeing the mobile friendly use cases that people are starting to use now. Um, and so that's available on Android and rolling out um, on iOS on, on both platforms essentially as well. Nice. Yeah. So anybody listening right now can try out that state of the art Gemini Ultra model um, yeah, through that uh, subscription and included in that means that as part of that Google One subscription, you're not getting access just to a generative model, but you're actually getting access to a suite of Google products. Um, I don't know if that's something that that's you right. Know yes, your, that you can, your drive yeah. access and yeah, additional features that you'll get um, across the Google suite of products as well. Yeah, so that seems like a pretty good deal, um, especially if you're already using Google Office Suite and Google Drive for different things, it seems like a no-brainer to be adding in those generative capabilities, which are in the flow of work for you. So you were talking about Duet earlier, which is integrated into the Google Workspace. So if you're in Google Docs or Slides, you can be relying on this in-the-flow assistant for helping you with tasks, which is something that going back to episode number 730 with Kyle Daigle, the COO of GitHub, Kyle was highlighting how important it is for these generative AI tools to be in the flow of work in order for them to be adopted and in order for them to lead to the kinds of efficiencies that employers are hoping for in getting those subscriptions. Yes, definitely um, connect with that. I mean, the first product that I worked on was actually Visual Studio. It was back in my Microsoft days. And so we were working on things like code completion and just completing that next word. And so it's pretty inspiring, I think, with just the state of generative AI to be able to just expand, um, you know, creating a, a class, um, a 
complete program. I think, I mean, I think there's, there's definitely an inline experience as we're discussing with, um, Duet, now Gemini for Workspace, um, as well as um, coding experiences. I think that there's also kind of a conversational experience that sometimes gives you a, then a higher altitude and where you can do kind of multi-step type of instructions as well. And so, I mean, really kind of the combination, I think, of those two experiences is pretty powerful. Research projects in machine learning and data science are becoming increasingly complex and reproducibility is a major concern. Enter ReadyTensor, a groundbreaking platform developed specifically to meet the needs of AI researchers. With ReadyTensor, you gain more than just scalable computing, storage, model and data versioning, and automated experiment tracking. You also get advanced collaboration tools to share your research conveniently and securely with other researchers and the community. See why top AI researchers are joining ReadyTensor, a platform where research innovation meets reproducibility. Discover more at readytensor.ai. That's readytensor.ai. All right, and so that gives us a clear sense of how the Gemini family of models can be used. But Lisa, something that I'm aware of, because I've been following this Gemini story since the first announcement months ago, but what are all of the models in the family of Gemini models, and why would somebody want to use one over another? Yeah, so when you go to... Um gemini.google.com. Um, you can also use the Gemini Pro model um, through our free experience. Um, and, you know, essentially with the, the larger models like Ultra, which you get through advanced, you know, these are larger, more parameters. Um, they, they are our most powerful, capable models for things like logic, reasoning, coding. Um, and so, I think, you know, it, you can also, you know, experiment between between the two and see the different experiences. But yeah, I think that there's, um, you know, depending on the task, um, you'll, you'll have kind of our best response from advance. I think that, you know, there might also be cases for smaller devices or kind of um, more real-time requirements where sometimes smaller models might also be ideal. And we're looking at kind of how to, how to ensure that you get the most of that the best of both worlds um, and the way that we implement this for you as well. Right. So if I'm remembering the terminology correctly off the top of my head, obviously the model that we've been talking about the most here is ultra, which is the largest, most capable uh, state of the art model. And so that is available uh, only through subscription, like the Google one that we were talking about, Google one uh, subscription that we were talking about earlier. And then there's Google pro is the next Tier down. No, sorry, yep, Gemini, Gemini Pro, Pro is and the, then next the next tier down. Would be Nano. Is Nano and Pro? Interestingly, despite the name, is actually available for free. Uh, as as part of, you can just go to yeah Gemini.google.com and be using that. And I and that is similarly the the generative model that if people were familiar with Bard over the past year, that Gemini Pro now by default I think replaces barred in that kind of search experience. Um, and then it's Gemini Nano, which is intended for edge devices. So like a phone could be running Gemini Nano. Um, and when I say that, I mean running Gemini Nano locally, because <laughs> I guess you get access to the apps uh, that you can get from the iOS store or from the Google Play store. Um, you could be not necessarily running locally on your phone, the Gemini Nano, you could be running 
from a remote server and taking advantage of even up to the Gemini Ultra uh, on your phone. Cool, cool, cool. All right, so we are on the same page on that. Um, you mentioned in another podcast being excited about large language models like ChatGPT and how they represent a category changer and huge business transformation. Obviously, you are now very much in the thick of it with Gemini. In what ways do you think these models, like uh, the GPT series models, the Gemini models, will specifically transform the practice of data science and the role of data scientists on product teams? I mean, I think about a couple directions. One, I think that it's really going to help democratize data further. I mean, I think with these large language models, the new programming language is English. So it's very accessible. And I think broadens data access to more people to be able to reason over data for things like business intelligence, insights. You, know, you can upload a table, um, CSV, and ask for trends um, or insights on that data. And so I think that it really democratizes data further. Um, and then I think for, for data scientists, I think, you know, just kind of like we were discussing in the developer context, like you're, we're constantly looking to increase the level of abstraction, make some of the more routine tasks more efficient. I think there's been a trend on this in general, as we have more kind of BI tools available, things like AutoML available, where a lot of those implementation tasks are just further automated for you. And you can kind of focus more on the more sophisticated tasks on the creative logic kind of behind the solutions that you're working on. Very cool. Yeah, it's been a game changer for me. And I've even done hour-long keynotes on this idea of how when you have when you no longer are responsible for writing every line of code, it allows you as a data scientist or as a software developer to be able to think kind of one level up and you still need to understand code. You still need to be able to write code and be able to edit code, but you don't need to be typing every character anymore. You don't need to be typing every line or every function anymore. And that's just going over the coming years, that's gonna get easier and easier and easier and more and more and more accurate such that whole functions, you can rely on them being written accurately first time by a generative AI tool. And so this frees you up as the data scientist or as a software developer to be thinking about the user experience and how now all of this code that you can quickly generate or you and your colleagues can quickly generate can be integrated together to create a powerful user experience. And so that, that's exactly the argument that I've been making in keynotes is that it, you are now armed with these powerful large language models you as a data scientist or a software developer are now more of a product person than ever before, or you should be thinking that way, I think. Yeah, no, that's right. I think kind of to your earlier point on, you know, staying in the flow, I think it allows you to just kind of stay at that, um, at that creative level as well. And whether you're, you know, typing out your ideas in bullet points or in pseudocode and then having the LLM complete and implement it rather than having to kind of keep context shifting from that high level design to the implementation um, lets you stay more at that level. And I think, you know, as you mentioned as well, you're still accountable for the, the code that's being written, but there's, you know, there's also ways that you can kind of leverage the LLMs too, to kind of reason over the code that you're, you're writing. I think we've just been tasking ourselves to like any task that you would do yourself, like keep asking yourself first, is this something that I could leverage an LLM for? And it's, it's pretty amazing kind of the number of times that the answer is yes. It's unreal. I recently had a colleague say to me that they are using, uh, ChatGPT in their case, less than they were when it first came out. And we do see that with um, 
there's there's public data on the OpenAI website being used somewhat less. But it's interesting for me to he- see those stats or hear a colleague say that because I'm using it more and more and more. Because the more that I use it, the more that I see it's so incredibly useful. In I'm I'm constantly thinking of situations like there's surely no way that something this complex, this nuanced, could possibly be nailed by an LLM. But let's try it. And then despite me seemingly not even giving enough of the context that I would have thought, if I had to explain this to a person, I would have thought that I'd need to give more context, but, I'm, but I've gotten used to this fact that I can even seemingly, due to the magic, I guess, of reinforcement learning from human feedback, even just my vague context ends up pointing the LLM in the right direction of the, the answer that I was looking for, the output that I was looking for. And I am on a daily basis still, nearly a year after the release of GPT-4, I'm still stunned on a daily basis by the brilliant things that LLMs are turning out. Yes, it is a pretty amazing and delightful experience just to see the, the fun surprises of what you can make up. Yeah. And uh, so on in that vein, also in a recent interview, you said that it's fun to work with new techniques like prompting and fine-tuning models. On a high level, tell us about how you leverage these kinds of things. I, I think it's safe to say that our listeners are, I, if, you've got to be, if you're listening to this show, please tell me that you're familiar with prompting because if you're not already playing around with prompting and seeing what that can do for you, I don't know, you're really missing out. Please do that today. Please mess around with these LLMs and see how they can be improving your life at writing code, at writing prose, at coming up with ideas, everything, anything imaginable. Um, so hopefully prompting is something that's well covered, but something that I suspect uh, not all of our listeners is are super familiar with is fine-tuning models. So um, what do you find, I guess you can talk about the prompting thing if you feel like it, but even more interesting for me, I think, and probably our audience, is this idea of fine-tuning models and what you find exciting or promising about um, these methods. Sure, we can walk through one by one. Um, yeah, the, the prompting, prompt engineering is the practice of designing effective inputs or prompts to get the desired results that you're looking for from large language models. And so this might be a preamble that you share with the model, a style guide, or some context that you give it. And so I think it's also a, just a really powerful tool um, to get you know, the best result from the model. So it might be about like giving it very clear instructions and being specific about what you want or giving a few examples that help the model understand the type of output that you're looking for, uh, maybe the formatting that you'd like for the results. Um, again, context, whether it might be code or kind of the values that you want to come through with what you're writing or a style guide. Um, so anyway, that's those are some, some thoughts on the, the prompting. Um, supervised fine tuning is the process of taking that pre-trained large language model and then adapting it further to a specific task by training it further on a labeled data set. And so that data set should be representative of the scenario that you're trying to optimize for. So there might be an amazing, um, you know, pre-trained model that you're using, but then you have an application or use case that you're developing for a specific, um, class of users. And so you want to optimize more for their type of use cases, um, preferences. And so it's kind of that next stage of then, um, you know, adopting more to that, um, ensuring like the best quality for that. It could also be like a niche kind of scenario. Um, And then maybe another just um, 
technique in this in this group would be the reinforcement learning human feedback. And so um, reinforcement learning is machine learning approach where um, you learn by the model learns by interacting with the environment and then getting either rewards or punishment kind of like as um, if you were to kind of give a, a dog a treat after they do a good job, kind of that approach. And so the reinforcement learning human feedback is the approach where then you use human feedback to get the positive or negative feedback signals. Last month, HPE and Intel together showcased the power of RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation, to bring relevant business data to your LLMs. In this month's free workshop, you can learn about the art of fine-tuning embedding models to deliver verifiable conversational chatbots using the HPE machine learning development environment powered by Intel Xeon scalable processors. No matter your experience level, join us to learn practical techniques to build trustworthy chatbots with guaranteed behavior for enterprise applications. Visit hpe.com slash slash chatbots to register today. We've got the link for you in the show notes. Yeah, and so that's the kind of thing that that reinforcement learning from human feedback, that RLHF that you just described, is what I was talking about, I don't know, a few minutes ago, maybe five minutes ago, with respect to that that training which is often, I understand, with these big LLMs uh, near the end of the training sequence, and it aligns the input that people provide with the outputs that come out, and you end up with, like I was describing earlier, me providing vague context and getting spot-on answers uh, seemingly miraculously, because I guess you know my vague thoughts and my vague context end up being about what other people in that scenario are also expecting um, and have provided feedback on. Uh, related to this idea of fine-tuning, something that I often do when I have guests coming up is I post on social media that the guest uh, will be coming on. I provide a little bit of information. And so in your case, I was talking about it actually happened to coincide with the, the release of Gemini Ultra and um, with the renaming of Bard to Gemini. So my social media post a week ago at the time of recording, I mentioned that, hey, Google's largest language model, Gemini Ultra, is now out uh, as of today. And next week, I'm interviewing Lisa Cohen, Director of Data Science and Engineering, for this release. What questions do you have for her? And we got a huge amount of engagement on LinkedIn. Uh, there's still going to be more, but we already have over 80 reactions there. Um, though I was surprised to see there weren't any particular questions on LinkedIn. And you and I were talking about this before recording. I think it might be related to, and listeners, please feel free uh, to pop onto my social media and let me know, you know what kind of happens in, the, in these scenarios. But I think with someone like you, Lisa, it's there, what you do is so interesting and complex that probably when somebody comes across that as they're swiping on their phone for a break during their workday, they don't, uh, it, it maybe, it might not be immediately obvious what a good question would be for you. And they're like, oh, I'll, let me just take some time to think about that and then I'll come back. But of course, this was just a social media feed, not something you put in your to-do list. And so tons of reactions on LinkedIn. Um, the one question that we got actually came on Twitter, which is for me somewhat unusual because I have a relatively small following there. But um, Maria Shaw, who was my guest on this podcast in episode number 639, she is well known for running the Python Simplified YouTube channel, which has over 200,000 subscribers. And so she asked you, what are the ideal system specs for running Gemini Ultra? 
And she says, I have an upcoming tutorial about fine-tuning LLMs, the topic that you and I, Lisa, were just talking about on this podcast. Um, so she has an upcoming tutorial about fine-tuning LLMs on the cloud, and she's still not sure which model to feature. And so this was an interesting question for me. I asked for clarification, but Maria, I mean, I just asked last night, haven't gotten a response yet from Maria. But my interpretation of this was that uh, Maria might have thought that this Gemini Ultra release was um, like a model weight release, which would have meant that she would be able to run uh, Gemini Ultra on her own infrastructure, which I suspect, I, I'm guessing that Google hasn't released these details and you certainly don't need to say anything, but I just suspect that Gemini Ultra is enormous and that the idea of fine, of training or even fine tuning something like Gemini Ultra on your own infrastructure might be um, an enormous and potentially expensive undertaking to try to do on your own. But there is Google Vertex, which streamlines people being able to do this themselves, right? That's right. Yeah. So I think so through Gemini.google.com, you know, you can through the prompting that we discuss, you know, give specific instructions for how you want the model to um, respond and kind of um, have some adaptation in that way. But I think for what she's describing here, where you're developing an application um, and you want to kind of call through to the Gemini model through an API and then build more upon that, um, then you would go through Google Cloud. Yeah. And so this, uh, yeah, through Google Cloud, specifically the Vertex application or module. I don't know exactly how these things get. <laughs> I guess it's an application. Vertex AI. Mm-hmm. Vertex AI. Um, yeah, it allows you to be fine-tuning, um, I guess, the whole family of Gemini models, um, including Ultra for your own particular use cases. And then you can call them as an API and so then deploy them as part of an application that you're building, which is an amazing thing to be able to do. I mean, this is something that we do at my software company, Nebula, we, uh, for prototyping LLM capabilities, for getting generative AI capabilities up and running in our application as quickly as possible, relying on proprietary APIs like this through the Vertex AI um, platform application <laughs> um, through Google Cloud is a great way to go and can allow you to get a huge amount of power in an application in no time. Yeah, so um, at the time of recording, currently, as you go through Vertex AI, you'll be accessing Gemini Pro um, through that API. Nice, nice, nice. Um, cool. Well, maybe someday soon, <laughs> uh, uh, maybe we will have access to Gemini Ultra through there as well. But I mean, even Gemini Pro is a hugely powerful model. And then if you're able to fine tune that to some particular task, um, at least my experience with taking even very small large language models, like in my case at our company Nebula, we will often use a relatively small model, like a 7 billion parameter Llama 2 model. And then fine tuning that for specific tasks, we can get performance that exceeds the very largest, most powerful LLMs out there that might have orders of magnitude more parameters in them, but just for that one specific task that we fine tune them for. So I don't even, I'm not even sure how many circumstances being able to fine tune ultra matters, uh, being able to fine tune pro could get you everywhere with, with all the cutting edge capabilities that you could need for a given application. Yeah. I think like you see in other kind of machine learning cases, it's the, um, the garbage in garbage out, but in the opposite way of like, if you really, if you get that high quality data, complete, um, data for the scenarios that you're looking for, it's really powerful to the, the quality of the results that you receive. Yeah. Yeah. With fine tuning, uh, for sure. 
Um, so another consideration that people might have as they're thinking about using a model like Gemini, particularly if they're thinking about building an application like we've been discussing, is safety. <laughs> so I suspect that Google has rigorously tested Gemini for safety. I further suspect that that is related to the delta of a few months between the announcement of the, of the Gemini model family. So Nano, Pro, Ultra were all announced several months ago, but it, uh, but, you know, it wasn't until last week at the time of recording that we got access to Ultra, for example, and I suspect that safety testing was a big part of that. That's right. So safety is paramount for us. Um, we've taken a stance at Google of being bold yet responsible. So safety has been a top priority for us throughout this journey and something we take very seriously in our launch decisions. Um, so we go about it in a number of ways. For one, we measure and evaluate the model responses with various safety metrics. So, um, you know, we're we're measuring and evaluating the safety um, with each release. We also have a ringed release process to catch issues before they, you know, can be can have an impact broadly potentially. Um, so we start with our, our team food internally, our trusted testers. We'll run a live experiment to a subset of users, and so um, um, again, it's kind of a, a careful rollout in that way. And then other safety practices such as red teaming, you know, going beyond our typical tests, but for any you know, especially if there's a new capability or use case that we're releasing and doing kind of um, targeted testing there um, for any potential vulnerabilities. Um, maybe another scenario where, you know, this came up as, you know, we, we released um, to older ages first, and then we later added releasing to teens. Um, and that was, again, to be additional, have additional care to recognize, you know, areas that would be inappropriate to younger users and implementing safety features for that, um, having guardrails to prevent unsafe content such as illegal or age-gated substances from, you know, appearing to teens. And so there's, there's just a variety of things that we look for when we're um, evaluating safety for the product um, from, you know, making sure that the response is not harmful, not offensive, um, not biased. We want to make sure reflecting multiple points of view on a topic. Um, we also want to make sure it's factual and not misleading. We want to make sure it's not taking on a personality that we wouldn't want the model to have. And so, you know, we test uh, all of these aspects and also test on different use cases to um, train the model on like how to respond or how not to in different situations. Um, regarding the factuality, um, we also have a double check feature. So if you click the Google button at the bottom of response, it will check the content and show the available sources for a citation as well. That is a super cool thing to be able to do. And it's interesting to me, factuality a year ago was something that we talked about all the time with respect to LLMs. The GPT 3.5 release, for example, it very frequently was hallucinating, making things up. And... That's not something that we talk about as much anymore, but I'm glad that you brought it up. I didn't even have it prepared in my questions because it's, for me at least, uh, you guys have figured out how to make this work in a way that I can just rely on the results most of the time. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're trying to make a big business decision um, you know, or any kind of, I guess, big decision, you should be double-checking the outputs of a generative AI model. You, you can't guarantee that they are going to be accurate, but I... With GPT 3.5, I was constantly checking uh, information that I got, and now I seldom do. Um, 
And so, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. One term that you brought up with respect to safety that probably uh, some of our listeners know, but we might want to dig into just a little bit more detail on is this idea of red teaming. So if I understand that correctly, that is when you have people internally who are acting kind of like hackers, like adversaries. That's right. Yeah, we'll have an internal team that, you know, simulates a a bad actor and is just looking for um, pressure testing the system to look for any potential vulnerabilities that might be there. And so essentially, if there's any holes or risk, we want to find them internally, you know, before they might go externally. And so it just helps make our, our process more robust. And yeah, as you mentioned that, you know, the factuality is a big focus for LLM. Some of these safety issues are things that, you know, working on other products, we always have an aspect of data science and the product team looking around safety, especially in this machine learning space, you know, we're training the model on data that's out there and really reflecting society, which does unfortunately have, you know, it, it can have um, biased content, um, offensive content. And then we're, we want the output of the result to, you know, kind of improve beyond the broad public data that it's ingesting. Um, and so I think that's where, you know, each company really gets to take an approach in terms of what are the values they espouse? Like what's the, you know, what do they want to appear with their brand name? And so something that yeah, for, for Google, we definitely take very seriously as well. Yeah, and it's an interesting, the etymology of red team is interesting, uh, which is that, so it comes from cold war simulations um, run for the United States military. And so the red team was the Soviets um, and they were going against the blue team, which was the United States. Interesting. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, so uh, we've talked about safety. Uh, we've talked about capabilities. One other interesting twist with a model like Gemini that is going to be used by Google users all over the planet. Obviously, the number one search engine in, uh, I mean, most countries, <laughs> most developed countries for sure. Um, so there's complexities there around language diversity and cultural nuances with AI models. What steps do you take to ensure inclusivity and accessibility for, say, non-English speaking users? This is a huge priority for us for the global product. So we expanded to over 40 languages and over 230 countries and territories in July. Um, and then last month, we made Gemini, Gemini Pro available for all of those languages as well. And so from a data science perspective, it's important for each release that we're not just looking at the overall metrics, but we also look to see if there's a particular cohort that's particularly deviating from the mean. So this helps ensure that we have the necessary training data per languages. You know, sometimes the UI might disproportionately impact some languages more than others. For example, looking at how things display with longer words, maybe in German or in Chinese characters. And so we want to make sure that, you know, the experiences we're enabling um, um, feel great in each language. And just like with machine learning, um, to remove bias, you want to make sure that your training set is representative. So when we train on data sets, we want to make sure that we have a broad set of language, geographies, um, cultural aspects, um, and check the quality and performance by language. So that's something that you know we're, we're checking before we, we release and then invest, in, if appropriate, um, as needed to get, to get everything to be an amazing experience across the board. Um, and I think it also comes through with different features that we launch. So for example, with image generation, which we just launched um, recently as well, um, we really wanted to make sure that we had diversity in the images that we create. And so um, it was important that, you know, we, we trained then on, you know, examples with different racial and gender diversity. And that's something that um, was really important to us and the type of results that we, we create. It's fascinating. 
you know, up until this point in the conversation, I'd kind of lost sight of the international breadth and complexity of all of these different products that you have to work on, which just adds a whole new dimension of wow to me thinking about the responsibilities that you and the people that you work with have as you roll out these products. It's so wild. Um, I don't know if you're working on these on this huge scale every day with so many different geographies, so many different languages, so many hundreds of millions of people, probably billions of people impacted with these product releases. I don't know. Does it, do you just get used to that or do you kind of every day be like, whoa, this is huge? I think it's definitely a responsibility that the team that we all feel. I mean, I think we feel it's also really empowering just to see how this AI can be so powerful. And I think democratizing across the board to bring, you know, information and capabilities to such a broad um, swath of users. You know, if you think about just like educational opportunities that come can come through this and how it brings that so broadly across the world. So um yeah, it's definitely a, a big responsibility and also really empowering. Large language models are revolutionizing how we interact with technology. With companies rapidly adopting models like the GPT and Llama series architectures, the demand for skilled LLM engineers is soaring. That's why Kirill and Atlan, who have taught machine learning to millions of professionals, have created the Large Language Models A to Z course. Packed with deep insights on tokenization, input embedding, transformers, self-attention, and LLM tuning, this course will help you gain hands-on experience with LLMs and stay competitive in today's job market. Enroll at superdatascience.com slash LLM course for your free 14-day trial. This course is exclusively available in the Super Data Science community. You won't find it anywhere else. Once again, the link is superdatascience.com slash LLM course. Yeah. And so on that note of empowering and something that uh, you must spend, or I suspect that you spend some time grappling with in these product launches with things like Gemini and search platforms, even Assistant, there's the potential for highly personalized user experiences. However, the more personalized that you try to make an experience, the more that things could kind of go off the rails. <laughs> and so there could be privacy or security concerns. So how do you balance that, uh, getting, getting this balance of personalization as well as safety right? So overall, um, we really want to make sure that we give users transparency and control. And so we have, you know, documented in our privacy hub, for example, the disclosures around, you know, what's the data that we're collecting. So, for example, when you interact with Gemini, um, Google will collect data such as conversations, location, feedback and usage information. And this helps us improve the product. So, you know, you talked about how you can give a very vague or um, brief prompt and you're getting this amazing response. It's exactly what you're looking for. And so, um, you know, all of that really helps enable um, the response that you're looking for. At the same time, um, you know, you can easily turn saving your Gemini activity off. Um, that's a setting that you have available um, right there through the UI. Um, you can delete your Gemini activity from your account at any time. Um, so those are capabilities that Google takes really seriously um, and implements robustly as well. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, again, I'm just, I'm completely wowed by the kinds of things that you're doing. Um, uh, another, another kind of strand following from the capabilities of models like particularly Gemini Ultra and the models that will come next, next year, or the year after 
um, there's a potential to revolutionize the way that we learn, um, not just the way that we access information. So do you have any insights into how AI-driven assistance could be improving outcomes in, say, educational settings? Possibilities are really limitless here, um, and it's pretty exciting to see the potential of what what we can do. So one example I'm really excited about is the democratization of personalized tutoring. So currently this can be really prohibitive due to costs for different audiences, but with AI, it really broadens access to this type of educational support. Um, the other day, my son was working on some new vocabulary and there's, you know, there's all these apps and flashcards and things that are made online. And within a few prompts, I could just give Gemini the list of words and definitions and it could start quizzing him in an interactive way. Um, so it's, it's really you know, very accessible and easy to use. Um, and of course, you could do that more broadly, asking the AI to teach you history, to create a lesson plan for linear algebra, um, developing homework assignments, answer guides. Um, you can also, you know, have it adapt depending on which answers you know versus not. Um, I've seen examples of people using AI to, you know, write and illustrate children's book or make a personalized story for a specific child. Um, so there's just so many directions that you can go with it. And it um, it's amazing what it can produce. It's so cool. It's, it is so limitless. It's mind boggling how we could, and increasingly, and maybe even with interesting kind of like philosophical implications, we could entertain ourselves endlessly with these kinds of like the, you know, on any imaginable topic, you are, it's like you're speaking with the best expert on that topic and you can go to so much depth and point you in the right direction and point out fascinating things about that area or just tell you entertaining stories. It doesn't need to be educational. It could be entertaining. And increasingly these things are multimodal. So generating images, generating video, to entertain or to educate, we are entering into a vastly different world from the ones that you and I grew up in. I mean, something that even as a, as a small example of this kind of change that I've seen, I don't have any kids yet myself, but when I see kids these days, um, they expect all screens to be touch screens. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's this level of interactivity and Generative AI takes that orders of magnitude further, where you might expect most objects, maybe, it, it could be the case a decade from now, that you expect most objects to interact with you and be helpful to you and be anticipating your needs. It's a wildly, wildly different world that we're going into. I don't know. I've just been kind of, I don't really have a question. I'm just <laughs> rambling. No, I completely agree. I think that our user expectations are evolving with each of these waves. Like there was the wave around personalization and kind of recommender models. And you just expect all products to be kind of personalized and kind of know what you're looking for. And you don't need to, you know, completely explain your preferences each time. And so I think there was kind of like the personalization wave. Um, and now with this generative AI wave and how it's being incorporated into so many products and experiences, I do think that's going to become a expectation going forward is like that you should just have that efficiency, productivity, and for the, the products to really just help help envision what you're um, you're trying to produce. Yeah, it's wild. Endless possibilities. And yeah, hopefully a lot of listeners out there thinking up ideas for how they can be leveraging tools like Gemini Ultra, embedding them into products or services and uh, creating, um, creating efficiencies for businesses or people, um, creating entertaining experiences for people. 
it is it has never been a more exciting time to be someone in the data science field or in software development and or even in product decisions related to these kinds of products. And it is accelerating, if anything, as this ecosystem evolves and gets more and more powerful. So cool. Um, uh, my understanding from public resources uh, is that Google aims to eventually integrate in the near term. So, I mean, you and I were kind of just talking about like maybe a decade from now, kind of all devices being, or most devices being interactive and efficiency producing. But even in the near term, Google aims to eventually to integrate Gemini widely into products like Gmail. Um, so, and we already talked in this episode about it through, through what was called Duet, you get access to it in Google Docs. And we already know that like through what was called Bard, you're getting access to Gemini through your Google search experience. So more and more and more integrations happening. Are there any particular ways that you see AI transforming people's um, daily use of productivity software in the coming year, the next few years? Yeah, so I think we've talked about, you know, staying in the flow, increasing the level of abstraction and just increasing your your productivity across all these tools. Um, I think for me personally, I've really enjoyed some of the capabilities for things like creative writing. Um, I think the idea that it can really help you you know, build the thing that you're, you're trying to build, but, you know, it gives you that creative inspiration, those ideas to spark and really create, um, that the best end product that you can. And so I enjoy, you know, for, whether it's for, for blogging or if I'm, you know, about to, you know, speak about a topic to my team and just getting, getting ideas, you can kind of use it as your creative collaborator, um, to, you know, cure writer's block, um, or again, just get additional ideas. Maybe there's a topic that I'm going to be covering and, you know, I have a, an outline, but I'll still ask Gemini and maybe it'll give me a fourth topic that it's like, oh yeah, actually I really did want to talk about that. I just didn't think about it at the time. So kind of helps remind me of additional, um, examples. Um, and it's kind of like having, you know, if you ever work with a really amazing editor, they take what you say and they really like bring it to life and what you really were envisioning. Um, so I think it's, it's awesome to have these tools to just realize your potential and express something so beautifully, just how you want to. Um, as a fun anecdote, my family has a tradition of writing poems for birthday cards and (laughs) amazing at that too. You can give it just details about the person and then, you know, you can incorporate to make it shorter, more casual, um, et cetera. And it always has a nice tone to it. And you could use it for your podcast to brainstorm interview questions. So Gemini can summarize YouTube videos, blogs, and articles, and then you can use it to propose questions or ideas and get some um, unique ideas from it there as well. Yeah. That is something that blows my mind that I didn't know about uh, that I could be doing with Gemini is being able to put in URLs for say YouTube videos or blog posts. And that is indeed a very interesting use case for me as a podcast host. Um, yeah, suggesting topic ideas, questions. Nice. Well, yeah. So all of these amazing capabilities, very exciting, um, reflecting on, you know, our perspective, both of us loving, uh, the huge capabilities that are being unlocked by generative AI today. Um, you made a comparison earlier to personalization being this kind of first wave and now us having this wave of generative, generative AI. Are there other moments 
Um, are there other technological shifts that you've experienced in your career um, that that you could compare this generative AI moment to? Yeah, I think another one that comes to mind was just the start of cloud um, computing when that really went big. And I just remember this visceral feeling that like the way we were doing computing was changing and I just needed to be a part of that. Um, and I think it's the same with Gen AI. It's like, it's a new paradigm. Um, it's a new way of working. And I think there's other parallels from that experience. I remember when we were, you know, when I was working on Azure and we were talking to customers about moving to the cloud, it was kind of two steps. First, you needed to understand, you know, why you would move to the cloud and work through various aspects around, you know, being comfortable with privacy and, you know, those aspects on on the cloud and the public cloud versus private cloud and, um, you know, just understanding what capability could provide. And then, and then it was the process of like choosing the vendor that you were going to go with, um, which company or product. And I feel kind of similarly with Gen AI. I think we're still in a state where people are still learning what you can do with this tool and capability, right? Even just like prompt sharing is a thing in a community. Um, and you kind of get wowed saying like, wow, I didn't realize I could use it for this. And so I feel like there's like that first step of just even knowing how to use these tools. And then the second on kind of diving into, you know, your scenarios as well. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very cool comparison. Yeah. So these kind of big shifts that we've seen in tech in our lifetimes, obviously the internet, that's a big one. <laughs> and I guess even just personal computing at least for people, uh, for me, you know, being able to, so yeah, personal computing, the internet, um, personalization was a huge one that you mentioned earlier, cloud compute that you just talked about now, and generative AI. It seems to me like generative AI is as big as any of these things, and it builds on all of them. They're all stepping stones. And uh, who knows what this will unlock next. Um, very cool. All right. So moving on from generative AI specific questions or Gemini specific questions, which obviously we focused on most of this episode, you have hinted at tremendous experience beyond just Google. So you've talked about things like Azure with cloud, uh, just now. So obviously you've worked at Microsoft, you've also worked at Twitter. And so with this experience of data science leadership at all of these huge data-centric, super successful tech companies, um, what kinds of challenges have you faced in developing data-centric cultures um, and how do you overcome them? Yeah, so I think for any culture change, you know, there's kind of, you kind of write the vision to get everybody on the same page of what does that final end state look like, but then it's all about living it in practice. So, um, getting your kind of leadership team aligned, um, you know, having good role models, having quick wins that are demonstrating that. I think for for data-driven cultures in particular, um, you know, it's really about finding, uh, helping have a shared understanding of kind of the power of what you can learn from the data. I think when you're in a state of, you know, hey, I have this really challenging problem that I'm trying to tackle and, you know, how can data help me get to that goal? Then that's a good state to be as opposed to, I'm already choosing this path. What's the data that will support it? And so, you know, I think overall we try to engage on those big strategic questions and see what we can what we can learn through the data to see how to to guide the strategy in that way. Very cool. So using the data themselves, <laughs> using the data itself to be able to uh, to be able to make uh, cultural changes. 
Um, something that you've talked about in the past is using the 80-20 rule to help data scientists balance simplicity and sophistication when developing models. Can you elaborate on that a bit on the show? Yeah, I think that, you know, sometimes we're looking at the most performant model and what's going to be the, um, the best quality solution. But I think that when we're, we're doing this craft in, in industry, we also have time to market to consider. And so, you know, working on Gemini, for example, if there's a, you know, some metrics or solution that we're trying to figure out and it's not going to be ready for six months, then I've lost out on six months of like, the, so much will change within that time. And so I think, you know, having some simple heuristics still helps move the conversation forward, helps us make better decisions than we did prior. Um, and it actually has this really nice side effect that it's very simple and explainable to the organization as well, while maybe in parallel, you work on maybe the more sophisticated solution as you go. Um, and it's a great way, just like with product development, where you have an MVP and you kind of get feedback along the way to kind of try these things in practice and kind of have um, move faster to market. All right. So that gives us a sense, you know, you're talking about the 80-20 rule there, gives us a sense of what we can be doing as individual data scientists um, and making the most of uh, simplicity versus sophistication, getting great models out. But as a data science leader yourself, you are often managing highly technical people who are developing models, but then you need to be ensuring that you're getting buy-in from the rest of the business. So how can you ensure that the data science research that you're overseeing is perceived as relevant and is well interpreted by commercial stakeholders in the business? So I think it starts with having that context, building that context around the both the domain, the product, the users, and the business goals that we're trying to accomplish together, um, presenting the work within that context. So this is how, you know, this is a lever that we can now use to achieve this goal that we're all working towards. Um, Using similar terminology, I think uh, sometimes I've seen um, a gotcha around DS teams seeming kind of more academic or it's kind of like research that might not seem as aligned. So as much as we can kind of use that common language together with our partners, I think that always helps kind of land it in the context that's understandable and relevant as well. Um, and then I think, yeah, I think just promoting like a sense of curiosity and proactiveness and ownership within the DS team so that, um, you know, we're, we're the experts on those data sets. We're finding, we're, we're coming across like interesting, maybe unexpected trends um, and raising those to the group so that we can really see across the board how there might be surprising insights that we might be able to learn towards our goals. Um, I think particularly as, as these systems get broader and larger like the data can be really unifying to to come through and and see, um, you know how users are how things are trending. I think sometimes when you're starting with a brand new product, like your sample size is smaller, you can actually you know just through asking users get a good sense of the pulse and how things are going. But I think as it's you start to have these broader scales, you really want to understand those trends more broadly. And I've seen, especially with like more complex systems. Um, places where we learn about our systems through the data. I remember there was this interesting insight where we were looking at just what are the top referral traffic to the 
paid subscription for um, Azure. And it ended up being like from this error page from users trying to get the trial who had already had a trial before. And so it was, you know, and then they were getting this very obscure error. And it's kind of like, well, if that's actually a a primary path for how users are coming here. Let's make it like this amazing hand white glove experience of like, oh, hi, you're here and now come and sign up. So, um, yeah, I think it's always fun. Again, we have the context where we're trying to help, you know, drive this funnel and make it a, a smooth experience and then kind of using those data and insights towards that goal, I think always works well. Very cool. I love how you how you use data as a plural term. That really uh, works well for me. Um, so... Yeah, you, you now have a great understanding of how you think about data scientists making the most of their workday, how to be conveying data science research across an organization to stakeholders. One last concept I have for you, given your rich experience over many tech cultures, many tech organizations, successful tech organizations, is this idea of centralized data science teams versus decentralized data science teams. So what is the difference between those and what are the pros and cons of each approach? So I think um, if you're going to start with the decentralized model, some pros that you get from that, and this is basically where you have maybe an engineering organization and they have uh, maybe either a small team of data scientists embedded within that org or some singleton DS um, where they want to make their work more data driven. Um, I think one of the benefits is that, you know, those folks are going to have that great domain context because they're working, you know, directly within the team that they're supporting on that area. Um, I think one challenge that happens in that case is that then the data scientists don't have um, like a peer group to, you know, socialize ideas with, learn from other approaches, um, kind of that efficiency of maybe some central libraries or experimentation type of infrastructure that you, data platform you could build together. Um, And then the career paths um, get a little bit trickier as well. It's not like you have a team that you can kind of naturally rise within. So I think once you go to the centralized models, um, there you get all of those benefits with, um, you know, the sharing of best practices, efficiencies of scale, um, and the the natural growth for individuals. Um, But there you have to be really intentional about, um, you know, getting those other benefits from the embedding. And so I guess the way that I generally like to design the org is that, you know, we kind of centralize to a certain critical mass. um, And then within, you know, myself and then each of my leads and all the way through the org, you know, each each data scientist has a counterpart and like a leadership team that they're part of. And so when you have that product engineering, user research, design counterpart, then you're working together towards a common goal, sharing insights along the way. um, And um, you can kind of work on um, broader sweeping, impactful changes. Very cool. Great insight there on the pros and cons of centralized versus decentralized data science teams. Lisa, I have thoroughly enjoyed all of this conversation today across Gemini, generative AI more generally, your insights into data science team leadership. Before I let my guests go, and you might know this because you have been listening to some of our episodes, um, I always ask for a book recommendation. Do you have one for us? Several, probably. I love I love books. <laughs> um, but I'll go with Leaders Eat Last by Simone Sinek. Um, I think great, great author. And yeah, definitely kind of gave me some new leadership perspectives. Very cool. And for people who would like to have your insights after this podcast episode, how should they follow you? LinkedIn and Twitter. 
nice classic choices, the ones that, that, that I use as well. I like to write uh, on Medium as well, but I always, I always link it from those sources. So, yeah. Oh, nice. All right, cool. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is, as I've been saying throughout this episode, it's so incredible the things that you are doing and that your teams are doing. Uh, bringing these incredibly powerful technologies to people in so many cultures all over the world, free access tiers to most of them. And um, yeah, I mean, you're playing a invaluable part in this massive shift like we've had in the past with cloud computing, the internet, uh, personalization, personal computers. You are playing a huge role in this big generative AI wave today. And so yeah, on behalf of our listeners, thank you. Uh, I'm super grateful myself, and I look forward to continuing to use Gemini Ultra and other Gemini models as part of my regular workflow. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for hosting this great series. All right, I hope you found it as much of a treat as I did to be able to hear from someone responsible for the rollout of a transformative cutting-edge AI model to billions of people just as that rollout is happening. In today's episode, Lisa filled us in on the Gemini model family, including Nano for edge devices, Pro for general free use, and Ultra for the most cutting-edge capabilities. She talked about how RLHF stunningly aligns LLM models with the outputs we'd like a generative model to have, how you yourself can fine-tune Gemini models through supervised learning via Google Cloud's Vertex AI, and these super cool emerging impacts of generative AI across work and personal life, including unbounded creative potential, it acting as a personal tutor, and devices all around us being interactive and efficiency-inducing. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Lisa's social media profiles, as well as my own, at superdatascience.com 761. And if you'd like to meet in person as opposed to just through social media, I will be in person at the Data Universe Conference at the massive Javits Center in New York City on April 10th and 11th. I'll be giving a talk on generative AI, and we'll also be walking around interviewing attendees to capture what you think of the massive conference. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Silvio, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another exciting episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful as ever to our sponsors. You can support this show by checking out our sponsors' links, which are in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. Otherwise, please share, review, subscribe, and all that good stuff. But most importantly, just keep on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening, and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon. Bye.